so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Dr. Robert George is a respected scholar, thinker, and Christian leader. At the ERLC's Leadership Summit, Dr. George gave a talk titled, Jesus Loves the Little Children, the Pro-Life Movement and Racial Reconciliation, in which he showed the connection between the cause of life, poverty, and family disintegration. These are issues that transcend race and require us to band together for the sake of transformation. We hope this talk educates and equips you as you uphold human dignity. As a rule, assistant secretaries in the Labor Department don't produce documents of lasting significance. The so-called Moynihan Report, produced by Assistant Secretary Daniel Patrick Moynihan in the winter of 1965 and published under the title The Negro Family, The Case for National Action, is an exception, perhaps the only one to that rule. The Moynihan Report gained notice almost immediately, but its analysis was just as quickly resisted and disputed in both the government and the academy. Moynihan was accused of arguing that low-income black families were simply causing their own problems, and he was accused of trying to undermine the civil rights movement. The social psychologist William Ryan actually coined the now famous phrase, blaming the victim, specifically to attack the Moynihan report. But my friends, Daniel Patrick Moynihan was a truth-teller. And when he was attacked and vilified, called a racist, accused of blaming the victim, profound emerging problem was left unaddressed. And fear caused others, fear of being called names, caused, caused others to lose courage and not tell the truth. To the extent that Moynihan has portioned blame at all, it was to the long and ugly legacy of slavery and to the persistence of racism in American life. And his aim was, in any case, less to blame anybody than to describe problem. Problem first presented itself to Moynihan and his team in the form of a surprising divergence in the black community between unemployment rates and welfare application rates, which also coincided with rates of single motherhood, since essentially only unmarried mothers could apply for aid to families with dependent children. Until the late 1950s, the two indices had risen and fallen together But starting in the late 50s, and this is what Moynihan noticed, welfare roles and family breakdowns seemed to increase further and further even when unemployment was low and the economy was strong. Moynihan realized that he was seeing something new and very deeply troubling. Most impressive in retrospect is that he understood that this emerging pattern was troubling above all, not for purely economic reasons, but for deeper, more significant reasons, reasons that are ultimately cultural. The fundamental problem, he wrote, I quote, 
is that of family structure. The evidence, not final but powerfully persuasive, is that the Negro family in the urban ghettos is crumbling. Communities affected by such crumbling of the family, he worried, face massive deterioration of the fabric of society and its institutions, as he said. Such deterioration, should it prove to be occurring, in fact, would constitute, and I quote him, the single most important social fact in the United States today. Now, the strength of the report was not in its analysis of the complex array of cases underlying the collapse of the family among lower-income African Americans. A significant portion of the report is devoted to such analysis. That's true, but these sections do not hold up very well in retrospect. This is not a strength of the report. Moynihan was convinced that what he was witnessing was fundamentally a phenomenon of the black community. And so it could be explained, he thought, by the tragic history of racial injustice and oppression and subordination, which rendered black families uniquely vulnerable to the kind of social and economic pressures now faced in poor urban environments. There's no question that the savage inhumanity to which African Americans had been subjected in our country for much of its history and the racism that's persisted far longer must have had detrimental effects on the black community and its families. But the particular pattern Moynihan began to observe in the 1960s has not, in fact, been limited to the black community at all. The evidence now overwhelming is, is that it is not about race. In the half century since he wrote, it's shown itself this same pattern, these same pathologies, these same phenomena in the lives of poor Americans of all races. That's true in my own native Appalachia. I grew up in West Virginia. It's true in old Rust Belt cities among white working class populations just as much as among black populations. The problem remains worse, though, in the black community, and the history and realities of racism that Moynihan pointed to are surely important contributing factors. But the challenge of family disintegration plainly runs deeper and broader than race, and we're going to have to deal with it. Family breakdown appears consistently alongside American poverty. In this sense, Moynihan's analysis of the causes wasn't exactly on target. He saw it too much as connected to race. The facts haven't borne that out. The report's also not notable for the solutions it proposed to the disturbing problems it laid out. Indeed, Moynihan specifically eschewed prescription and committed himself to stick to diagnosis. The object of his study, he said, had been to define a problem rather than solutions to it. And the chief reason for doing so, he argued, was that there are many persons, and I quote, within and without the government who do not feel that a problem exists, at least in any serious degree. These persons feel that with the legal obstacles to assimilation out of the way, met with the Civil Rights Acts and so forth, matters will take care of themselves, I'm quoting, in the normal course of events. That's what he believed. And here we find the core of Moynihan's contribution, though. It was simply put to tell the truth about what emerging facts seem to suggest about a troubling social trend and about the foreseeable implications of that trend for the lives of poor people. The family appeared to be breaking down among lower-income black Americans, and broken family means broken communities and broken lives. Both elements of that diagnosis were crucial, and both were very hard pills to swallow. That's why people didn't want to hear it. Didn't want to hear it. Didn't want to face it. Easier to call him a name, dismiss him, not deal with the problem while people are suffering. 
Oh no, look away. The latter elements in particular, the simple fact of the importance of the family to the health and flourishing of society and its members, has been surprisingly controversial. You think that wouldn't be controversial, but it has been in the half century that followed Moynihan, because that's when we got the sexual revolution. Roughly halfway through that period, in 1992, Moynihan himself took up the controversy in a speech he delivered at the University of Chicago. He was blunt. Despite President Johnson's personal interest in his arguments, Moynihan said, the years that immediately followed the report, the era of the Great Society, brought to power an approach to social science and public policy that made the problem he had diagnosed in 1965 much more difficult to address effectively and even to talk about honestly. Simply put, he said, the Great Society era gave great influence in social policy to viewpoints that rejected the proposition that family structure might be an issue. Well, that it's an issue is the understatement of the century. The most striking, even shocking feature of the sociological and to some degree economic literature in the several decades following Moynihan is the sheer lack of interest in the question of what family breakdown among the poor means, which no one could deny by 1992 was occurring. The few exceptions acted merely to prove the rule. Those exceptions included the work of Moynihan himself during his academic career. The other people responsible for exceptional attention to this problem had mostly followed a path similar to his. Think, for example, of the writing in the early editions of The Public Interest, uh, which had actually published Moynihan's uh, lecture. So there were some, but few. Now, when he delivered that lecture, and it was 27 years uh, after the uh, report, Moynihan might have had some reason to suppose that finally his small band of truth-tellers were being heard but it was not to be. For one thing, the underlying social trends have gone, grown far worse since that time. And the fact that the problem cannot be attributed simply to racism and to its consequences has become clearer. In 2010, an astonishing 72% of African-American births were to unwed mothers. So were 53% of Hispanic births and 36% of white births. Those figures were all far higher, far higher than Moynihan had seen in the black community in 1965. He was ringing the alarm bell when the out-of-wedlock birth rate reached 25% in the African-American community and 5% in the general population. But now today, you've got the figures I just cited for you, and as a whole, 41% of children born most recent data we have is for 2010. 41% of children born in the whole country are born to unwed mothers. If you look at children, at women in peak childbearing years, you're approaching 50%. That's catastrophic. And it's not happening at the upper end. It's not happening with affluent, well-off people, highly educated people who are in good shape. It's devastating the socioeconomically less well-off. And that rate, by the way, my friends, is growing fastest among whites. Between 1992 and 2010, births to unwed black mothers increased by 6%, while those to unwed white mothers increased by 59%. Moynihan was wrong to assume that the trends he was seeing in 65 represented a fundamentally race-based problem. They're a cultural problem, a morality 
problem. And for all of us, a justice problem if we care about human beings made in the very image and likeness of God, especially if we care about the least, the last, the lost. Got to have the courage to speak the truth. And what's more, the academic world has not grown any more hospitable to the notion that family structure is an essential social concern. It's still academics, my fellow academics, in so many cases want to put their heads in the sand. You know why? Because they bought into, in so many cases, sexual revolutionary ideology. Nothing wrong with out-of-wedlock childbearing. Nothing wrong with extramarital sex. They've gone along with the glamorization of extramarital sex. The glamorization of -of out-of-wedlock childbearing. You remember Murphy Brown? Yeah. Dan Quayle was ridiculed for saying, we've got a problem here. No, no, Hollywood wants to glamorize that. It's fine for Murphy Brown, the Murphy Brown character. Well off, she can afford governesses and fancy private education. How about the poor young women who are influenced by that? What about them? Who's going to take care of them? They're the victims. Hollywood can just pride itself on how liberal and open-minded we are. Somebody else pays the bill. Now, although some ground was surely gained in the 80s and 90s, much of it has been lost since then. And that's because we have new taboos now about telling the truth, new taboos about studying and discussing the implications of family structure. And those are hardening into something more than taboos. And that tracks the rise of the campaign to redefine marriage. Indeed, even many Republican politicians now shy away from arguments about the importance of marriage for fear of stepping on landmines in the same-sex marriage debate. They don't want to be ridiculed the way Dan Quayle was ridiculed. And now you get ridiculed even more because you raise the marriage issue, the family issue. Kids need dads. You're in big trouble. But as Moynihan noted a half a century ago, both the data about family formation and the centrality of family to the flourishing of society and its members simply cannot be denied. I mean, we know the truth now. It's just a question, I'm going to speak it. We know it. Nobody, you can't really hide it. It's there. It's all in. As the liberal Brookings Institution social scientist Isabel Sawhill recently put it in the title of an article, Dan Quayle was right. Of course, now that's buried on page 26. Today, far more even than when Moynihan penned his report, the implications of family disintegration, what that actually means in the lives of boys and girls, young men and women, are essential to understand. It's customary to describe these implications in economic terms. That's surely one important and useful way to illustrate the cost. Nearly half the children raised by single mothers are living in poverty while roughly a tenth of children raised by their married parents count as poor. It's a huge disparity. Another way, though, to think about the consequences of these trends is sociological and psychological and not merely economic. Another Brookings Institution scholar, Ron Haskins, recently summarized the effects of single parenthood on the children involved in this way. Quote, partial list of these effects, the the Brookings Institution, a liberal think tank, The partial list of these effects includes an increase in the likelihood of delinquency, acting out in school or dropping out entirely, teen pregnancy, mental health problems, including suicide, and idleness, no work, no school, as a young adult. 
Married parents, in part simply because there are two of them, that's not the whole story, have an easier time being better parents. They spend more time with their children, set clear rules for, and consequences, talk with their children more often, engage in them with back-and-forth dialogue, provide experiences for them that are likely to boost their development. All these aspects of parenting minimize the kids' uh, kinds of behavioral issues that are more commonly seen among children of single parents, especially in circumstances of poverty. You want to talk about equality? You want to make people more equal? You want to make this a more equal society? My goodness, rebuild the marriage culture. Rebuild the marriage culture. Now, the, thank you. Now, the temptation, of course, among people lacking firm respect for the sanctity of human life and belief in true racial equality, the temptation when that describes you is to try to solve the problem another way. How are we going to take care of having too many poor, more poor people? Too many black people? Contraception? And if that doesn't work, abortion. And so, what we heard this morning from our brother about the targeting, about the placement of those clinics, we're not dealing with the problem, trying to put a Band-Aid over the problem, lay aside even the, the death-dealing reality of abortion. You try to deal with this problem by, by condoms, you think that's going to work? You think that's going to solve the problem? That's not going to solve the problem. The problem is family disintegration. Now, none of this is to downplay the extraordinary and often heroic efforts of many single mothers to help raise their children in a way that will avert these consequences or the successes that many of them have achieved. On the contrary, findings like these help us to see just how difficult the challenges are faced by mothers raising children alone. And we talk about single parenthood, I mean, the reality is we're talking about mom. Describing the crisis of family among low-income Americans in these economic and sociological terms may itself be a way of avoiding the deeper problem of which these are but sim symptoms. The family is the core character-forming institution of every human society. If the source of the most basic order, structure, discipline, support, and loving guidance that every human being requires is the family, then what do you expect to see when the family disintegrates? Are you shocked? Shocked? At the consequences in delinquency, despair, drug abuse, crime, incarceration, and a vicious circle. It's simply essential to see what Pastor called this morning human flourishing depends on family integration. It's hard to imagine how any of the social problems that take up the time and effort of our policymakers and our policy scholars, problems of economic mobility, educational attainment, employment, inequality, and so on, could be mitigated in any significant way without some significant reversal of the trends and failure of family formation and family breakdown. And these are ultimately human problems, problems of the soul at least as much as they are economic and social problems, which tells us that that institution of human society that God has given us, whose job is soul craft, the church has got to be centrally involved in this. It can't do it by itself. There's a role for politics and government. There's a role for economic institutions. It, it would be oversimplifying to say this is simply a soul problem. 
But it's a lie to say it's not a soul problem. It's a lie we're all too willing in this society to tell ourselves. Now, the facts about the collapse of the family among America's poor, white, Latino, as well as black, are deeply uncomfortable for the left and the right alike. They're uncomfortable for the left because liberals don't want to acknowledge what they show us, these problems show us, about the importance of the structure of the traditional family and about the need to reinforce it. If you bought into the ideology that says a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle, you're not going to want to look at the problems of single mothers. And they're uncomfortable for the right side, the conservative side, because conservatives often don't want to acknowledge what these problems show us about the destructive effects of persistent poverty and about the difficulty of helping people rise out of it. It's not just, okay, pull yourself by, by your bootstraps. That's what somebody else did. That's what my grandfather did. That's what this other ethnic group did. Oversimplifying, to make it easy for us. The reality is messy, like Pastor said. It's complex. But that's not an excuse for not thinking seriously about it and then doing something about it. The facts suggest both the importance of the family and the need for public action and that means that they're perfectly suited to being avoided by anybody who's got some other agenda like getting elected or getting reelected or, you know, getting some economic interest they want advanced to be taken care of or what have you. We've got a moral problem here that's got to be addressed by people who really care about the common good. And we're going to prioritize the needs of the poor and not going to use poor people as political pawns. Moynihan could see the danger a half a century ago. His report was meant to warn us about it. His concluding words, though shaped by his sense that race was at the core of the phenomenon, and that turned out not to be right, still ring true decades later. Here's what he said. The policy of the United States is to bring the Negro family to full and equal sharing in the responsibilities and rewards of citizenship. To this end, the programs of the federal government bearing on this objective shall be designed to have the effect, directly or indirectly, of enhancing the stability and resources of the Negro family. That was the right goal. But it's not just for blacks. Whites too. Latinos too. Because we know that the problem is not confined to any racial group. Whatever it looked like in 1965, it's 2015. You don't need to, you can visit Detroit and see it, but you can visit Harlan County, Kentucky, or Boone County, West Virginia, or you can visit those Rust Belt cities and see the white working class or the barrios, you're going to see the same thing. The promise of America, Moynihan understood, is unreachable for anybody of any racial group in the absence of strong and stable families, mothers and fathers. That call should now be generalized into a case for making the strength of the family our number one national priority. The lessons of the, great, of the past half century, and especially the great society's mostly failed experiments, well-intentioned but failed experiments in social policy, can help us to think more clearly about the means by which this end could be achieved. They should lead us toward policies rooted in decentralized experimentation, where people can deal with people on a name basis, rather than consolidated larger prescriptive programs. And they need to focus on empowering the institutions of civil society, beginning with the family but the church, the civic association, the mutual support group, rather than displacing those institutions. Where government goes wrong sometimes, well-intentioned, it's when it usurps the authority and undermines the autonomy and the integrity 
of the institutions of civil society, trying to play their role, do their job. But the end was well laid out in Moynihan's prescient words. The end should be the reinforcement and recovery of the core institution of our society and every society, the marriage-based family. Putting that goal at the center of our politics must begin by stating plainly that the future of the family will determine the future of this country. That may seem like a simple and straightforward fact, but as Daniel Patrick Moynihan showed a half century ago, responsible and constructive work in this area often consists simply in stating the facts, what I was saying on the panel, simply in telling the truth when other people don't have the courage to tell it. It'll make a huge difference if we'll just go out there and say it. And that'll make it difficult for anybody who wants to deny it or cover it up because it's there. His report gave us a model for truth-telling. My dear brothers and sisters, let's follow the model. Let's tell the truth. God bless all of you. We've got to be able to do the Word of God, not just speak the truth that we must unapologetically testify that God values all life from the unborn to the disabled to the dying. If God values it, we value it. The value of human life isn't just an issue for Congress or activists or ethics professors. It's an issue for every single Christian and local church. The churches where the unborn are prayed over, where the widows are visited, where the orphan is adopted, and where the disabled and the unwanted are made heirs with the Lord of the universe. If fear is keeping you from loving people who are different from you, then fear is keeping you from God. The church must speak a prophetic gospel word to our culture of death. The cause of life is not a liberal versus conservative issue. It's a kingdom issue. And children of the King must stand up in defense of all of human life. Will you join us as we do just that this coming January? Come, march with us as we stand up for life in Washington, D.C. and stay for our 2018 Evangelicals for Life conference with Focus on the Family afterward. Learn more at evangelicals.life and use the promo code ERLC podcast to save 20% on registration. These children are not burdens. These children bear the image of God and are blessings. Thank you for listening to the ERLC podcast. You can stay up to date with the latest episodes by subscribing at ERLC.com. And join us next week as we learn how to love our LGBT neighbors.